Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So you're probably well aware that the retreat is ending tomorrow. Anybody not realize that? And as is uh, likely to happen when you can see the end in sight, um, you see the finish line there and the mind goes to, oh, what am I going to do when I get home? Or, oh no, do I have to go home yet? One or the other, you know. Oh, I can't wait. Ooh, do I have to go? But one way or the other, you're probably having... um, the return in your mind and in your heart. And you might be uh, asking yourself uh, now, that as that part of the retreat is, is near, uh, now what? What do I do with this? Maybe, uh, what have I learned? Or how can I apply this to my life? <clears throat> Hopefully you've learned something here that can be useful to your life. And it might not even be so obvious just yet. Sometimes the seeds that you plant, and you have all planted many seeds of mindfulness and awakening and at least uh, good intention and goodwill to become more conscious, they most definitely will sprout and bear fruit in their own time, although it might not be so obvious um, from day to day or tomorrow or the next day. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, about that, about bringing our practice into the world tonight. And tomorrow we'll share a bit more, but some things that seemed uh, since I have the opportunity, uh, seemed useful to share. First of all, people will probably ask, so? (laughs) How was it? What was it like? Um, And it might be good to have a very simple answer. Guy Armstrong, one of our colleagues, says, uh, just say, it was great. Or, or, I learned a lot. Mostly people want to know, are you okay? (laughs) Either, did you join a cult, or, uh, or, you know, is your brain clean or washed, one one or the other? Um, And, gosh, how did you make it through all those days without talking, if this is new to them? Or, if they've done retreats before, oh, yeah. Did you get an insight like I got last time? Mm -hmm. Uh, I would recommend don't share your whole retreat with with them, with people. Uh, You, especially if you've touched some uh, important or rich or uh, valuable understandings, um, don't give it all away. There might be one or two people who it seems important to share your most precious moments with. Uh, but if you start sharing it by the eighth or ninth time you, you tell about your precious understanding, it's more of a story than a lived experience. So let it just be there and do its, its thing and, it, and its magic while, uh, while it's still fresh. Mm-hmm. And the seeds will keep on sprouting weeks, months, sometimes a month or a year later you look back and say, oh, that's what I got from that retreat. I remember the first time I did a long retreat, uh, the the fall retreat uh, in in, uh, Insight Meditation Society. And when people would ask me, and I, I would, it really, it distilled down to, you know, I saw... In, in some inexplicable way that it, 
it's just not worth the ripples in my mind to do things that uh, I'll regret afterwards. You know, not that I learned that forever, but <laughs> I got the lesson somewhere deep inside, and it kept on. It's kept on bearing fruit. I might actually, before we go on, just take a moment and uh, uh, reflect and go inside. Um, and not that you have any right answer or wrong answer or a need to come up with some brilliant gem, but just uh, ask yourself for a few moments, what have you learned? Maybe something's become clearer to you or something that uh, maybe that you've heard about or read about, but now it's a, a, a truly personal lived experience or understanding. And just uh, take it into your heart, let it register and let, let it be perhaps uh, an ongoing instruction, exploration, perspective that can support you as you as you go home and whatever you're getting in touch with right now is probably much more important than what I might say okay you can come back if you like I want to share some things that uh, I find useful to keep in mind along with whatever your own personal understandings are. Uh, first, as has been said, um, I find it uh, very helpful and important to realize that this path is a path about happiness. This is not just about endurance or acceptance and resigning ourselves to open up to the dukkha, what life has for us. I mean, that's certainly a very important thing to, uh, to learn, very profound, that you don't have to be afraid of suffering and there's ways to work with it. But uh, sometimes, it can be lost in our emphasis on suffering or the way the teachings are set up um, that this is a path of happiness. You hear the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering in life, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and there is a path leading to the end of suffering. That's a lot of suffering, and (laughs) even if you know that it's about the end, it's still Oh yeah, suffering and the end of suffering. (laughs) But the Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and all the other true happinesses uh, can be yours. In the Satipatthana Sutta, I think I quoted it earlier uh, in the retreat, there is one most direct, wondrous way, as it's sometimes translated, to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, despair, pain, anxiety, and realize the highest happiness, and that is the establishment of mindfulness. That's what we're doing here. As perhaps you you know, uh, if you've read the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness. And the first line in that book, which I love, says, the purpose of life is to be happy. That's quite a line, just let that land. The purpose of life is to be happy. You might think, gosh, that sounds kind of frivolous or self-indulgent, but really, if you discover true happiness, which is what the teachings are pointing to, then 
all of the goodness inside of you shines through and everybody gets the benefit of it, not just you. So although when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Don't miss the fact that the end of suffering is genuine, real happiness. And it's very uplifting when you think of it that way. I wrote that book, Awakening Joy, and have taught that course for a number of years because I lost my joy. I got very serious at one point about my practice. After it being a long honeymoon, wow! I mean, it was the turning point in my life before and after finding the Dharma. And it was just so, um, I felt so blessed and so grateful that I practiced and had a chance and fell in love with practice. At some point in my practice, I became very serious about practice. Dead serious <laughs> about practice. Emphasis on the dead. This is not about cultivating grimness. Grimness is not a factor of awakening. Joy is a factor of awakening. And when I saw that I had lost my joy, my natural joy, I wanted to take a look and see where I'd gone wrong. Uh, so I want to spend a little bit in this talk sharing some, um, some understandings that I've had so you can hold this as a, a, a path of happiness. <clears throat> when I did reclaim my joy, uh, instead of saying, oh wow, that's not, that teaching can steer you wrong, I decided, I, since I loved it so much, and it was so deep inside of me with so much gratitude, I wanted to see, well, what does the Buddha actually say about cultivating happiness? And I'm glad that I, I did because uh, there's some beautiful, powerful teachings that can be applied and cultivated. So I want to share with you um, three basic principles upon which the, my whole approach to, to practice as a path of awakening joy is based. First teaching, the Buddha talks about wise effort. He says there are four components to wise effort. Two have to do with unwholesome states like greed, hatred, delusion, fear, all of those contracted states. He says guard against unwholesome states when they arise. Learn how to overcome them uh, sorry, guard against them and to keep them from arising. And then second, when they have arisen, learn ways to overcome them. And we've talked a lot about that here. And then two, having to do with wholesome states, healthy states, states of happiness and joy, like compassion and generosity and kindness. Uh, and patience and all of those expansive states that feel good in the moment and lead to more well-being. He says, cultivate those states like we do loving kindness practice or uh, compassion practice or mindfulness practice, which is the, the most purifying state of all. He says, cultivate those states and when there's a wholesome state that has arisen, to maintain and increase the wholesome state. That might sound a little strange. Well, wait, if I'm trying to increase the wholesome state, isn't that attachment? And here's the tricky part. If you're holding on to a wholesome state or wanting it to increase, you've just turned it into an unwholesome state because the grasping that is that contraction that cuts it off. So rather than trying to, trying to make it bigger, although 
the, the suggestion is increasing a wholesome state is healthy. There's, it's not by grasping. There's another way. And that way is the second principle, being very present for a wholesome state when it arises. And there's one discourse that I hit upon as I was reclaiming my joy uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's in number 99 for those scholars who are interested, where the Buddha says um, that there's a gladness that's connected with what's wholesome when you're in the middle of a wholesome state. And he uses the, the example when you're in the middle of an act of generosity to think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. Just think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. Not, I hope everybody sees how generous I am. Hey, check it out. Hey, pretty good. Okay, no, no, no. That's just taking ownership of it. But he says, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. And there's a feeling of uplift. There's a gladness that's connected with that moment. And he says in the discourse, that gladness connected with the wholesome is any, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. It's good. That gladness, uh, he says, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, in, in the truth of things. So the idea is to pay attention to moments of well-being. Not grasping them, but not missing them either. And it's one thing to know, hmm, feeling pretty good. It's a whole other level to know, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. Just that simple little shift where you let your awareness register, oh, this is calm, oh, this is peace, this is joy, this is love, to not miss it. Because we're so trained to look for what's wrong that that becomes what we find. We will find what we look for. And if you're continually looking for what's wrong, you'll notice what's wrong. We have this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brains called the amygdala that looks out for, scans the horizon for danger. And it's a good thing that, it, that it's there. It keeps us safe, but often it's overactive. Particularly when we're stressed, the amygdala fires a lot. And it's very hard to see what's right. I, I read one study where if somebody, uh, if you have a negative encounter, for most people it takes about seven encounters, positive encounters to balance it out. Uh, or as, as Rick Hansen, who is a dear friend and uh, teaches often at the course and teaches here at Spirit Rock, a neuroscience expert, he says the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative ones. <laughs> so it takes some practice to let the goodness register. So uh, this might be a kind of, you know, extra credit assignment, but it's not a bad one. Don't miss all the goodness in your life. Take it in. That's the best way to maintain and increase wholesome states. And then the, the last uh, principle, which is as you practice something, it becomes more and more a part of who you are. As you incline the mind in one direction, that's the direction it goes. The, the, the famous um, words of the Buddha, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? 
That's why we're practicing. And if we aren't practicing non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, the default is, guess what? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And as you incline the mind towards more clarity and well-being and consciousness and kindness and wisdom, that's what you start to notice. In neuroscience, the axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. <coughs> and we are, um, uh, we are subject to what's called in neuroscience a confirmation bias, where you find what you look for. And if you're looking for how everybody is going to disappoint you or how you're always blowing it, you'll probably get ample evidence to corroborate your hypothesis. But if you look for how basically people want to uh, be loved and love or want to, um, uh, to help if they can or that it's amazing to be alive, as you start to notice that, your confirmation bias will notice everything that confirms your hypothesis. That's how it works. So to cultivate those wholesome states, here you've been doing it on on the retreat, and as you keep on doing it at home, to take time to let them register any moments of well-being. There's so much, there's enough suffering in this world. You know, this is not going to help you avoid suffering. It's just going to give you a larger context with which to open up and hold the inevitable dukkha that's part of life. This is your natural state. You might be thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, born grumpy. Uh, (laughs) This is Chloe Thomas, who was born uh, in Melbourne, Australia, eight weeks premature, and this picture was uh, taken before she had reached nine months after conception. Just remember who you are. That was you. Maybe you say, I don't know, but that was, we all come into this world if we're fed and we're diapered and we are given a little bit of love, we squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? And that's one reason we love being around babies. That's still you. And if you've touched any moments of well-being and, and delight and ease, There it is. That's why when we take refuge in the Buddha at the beginning, we're taking refuge in that capacity to fully awaken to our true nature. And it's not just for babies. If you put an adult in an fMRI machine and that adult does not have stress and does not uh, physical or mental stress, those are big right there, and they are... Uh, not just um, if they haven't completely cultivated a negative attitude towards life, um, that the brain naturally exhibits um, being conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's your natural state when the mind doesn't get in the way. And when you... Uh, when you might say, well, I don't know, I'm my own worst enemy. And certainly, you know, this is, if you sometimes feel that you have a lot of company, it's amazing how we can be hard on ourselves. We're the last ones to get the benefit of seeing who we are. You're missing the fact that something in you is rooting for your happiness. That everything you do, you're doing, you check it out, don't take my word for it, you're doing because some way or another you uh, 
think it's going to make you feel a little better or less bad. It might be misguided at times, but check it out. Everything is motivated by this wanting to feel a bit better and feel or feel less worse. Even if somebody says, "Mm, I don't want to be happy. I like being grumpy. (laughs) That's just their way of being happy. (laughs) Whatever turns you on. But take a look. Everything you do, and when you can get in touch with the fact that somewhere deep inside of you, something has been moving you, calling you to support your well-being. And fortunately, when you get in touch with the Dharma or some inspiring teachings, it's pointing you in the direction of where true well-being really is. That's the gift. And it starts with the intention to be happy. You know, you, we say in the, in the metta phrases, may I be happy? And you might think, gosh, is that kind of sappy? You know, is that kind of frivolous? May I be happy, you know? It's even a bumper sticker and uh, you know, decals. It's a very profound thought. May I truly be happy. May I open up to all, that, all the goodness in my life. Whatever words ring true for you. But you deciding to go for real happiness is the key to this whole process. And something in you has brought you here. Something in you even stronger than all the doubts, all the self-judgments, all the history, all the whatever, something in you has pulled you here to do this not easy work, this difficult work, because you've sensed that it can bring you a little bit more ease and calm and happiness in your heart. Don't miss that. That's amazing. It's, am- it's amazing grace, one could say, that not only um, is it there, but you could hear it. You could listen to it. Sometimes you might wish that you didn't hear it and you want to, you know, oh, do I really have to do that again? You know? But there's something that you can't ignore that got you here. And there's something stronger than all the doubt and confusion that keeps pulling you in And on top of that, you have the opportunity, besides the inclination, to practice. That's amazingly good karma. We all have amazingly good karma. So getting in touch with that intention to go for it and face in the right direction. Now, as you've seen these last few days, likely you've encountered a bump or two in the road onto deep bliss and peace, okay? That's part of the deal. It's not wrong. You haven't made a mistake. This is a a very humbling experience at times. You know, there you are. I think I said that one teacher saying this is one insult after another sometimes. You know, I was, no, I, that was the same guy who talked about manual labor. He said practice is sometimes one insult after another. Yeah. Oh, God. And if you can move it from, oh, look at my mind, look, to, wow, look at the mind, then then you are discovering the human experience instead of taking it so personally. But it is humbling. That's part of this ride. It's not just, can I get a sweet meditation and stay there for five days? That, you wouldn't learn that much from that. But it's being here for the ride and seeing you can be here for anything. When it's beautiful, ah, 
don't miss it. When it's challenging, ah, how can I grow? How can I be with this too? So this is how we grow. This is how we, you know, what's called growing pains. And as long as we keep on learning, there's no mistakes. No matter how difficult or what depths you've gone to here, you hopefully have learned both how to open to it a little bit more and to not take it so personally. So your own dukkha, going through your own dukkha, is what gives you courage and faith. Not that everything's going to be okay, but that you can trust that the awareness can meet the moment when it comes. And gives you an inner kind of um, stability and centeredness. This is part of how it works. That's why the Buddha started out the first noble truth, there's suffering in love. Because he said, if you are trying to avoid that, you'll spend your life missing out on the truth and you won't know how to deal with it. And there's a beautiful teaching I love. It's called Transcendental Dependent Arising. If you want to impress your friends, you can <laughs> say it. You can Google it and there's a great es- essay by Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier translator of the Pali Canon, Transcendental Dependent Arising. And it starts out, suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy, can lead to happiness and contentment and peace all the way to the highest awakening. Let me ask, how many people have been motivated by their own suffering to look for answers that have led them on their Dharma journey? Look around. That's how it works. This is not a mistake. It's part of the plan. It's part of the curriculum. So when you see that or when you are encountering your, your suffering or sorrow, just a few things to keep in mind. One, as Pema Chodron says, I shared this with a couple of people in the last day or so, she says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Not the fact, oh my gosh, so, it's so messy in here, but take delight in the fact that you're seeing it. Because the awareness is the perspective that gives you a sense that it's not, it's not who you really are. You've just gotten caught in your thoughts. You're just, it's just habits of mind and heart. And take delight that you're able to see it, that you're starting to wake up. And every time you see it, I was saying to somebody today who wrote me a sweet note, uh, when they, they saw their doubting mind, oh, there's so much doubt in here. And we were talking about this and I said, celebrate your doubt. Celebrate every time you see it. Ah, I see you. Like the Buddha saying, I see you, Mara. I see you. You know, Mara came to the Buddha be, uh, before he was enlightened and tried to knock him off his seat. The Mara, the embodiment of confusion and temptation, well, the Buddha was also visited by Mara after he was enlightened. And there's a number of vignettes, I think about 20 or so, 25 vignettes in the Samyutta Nikaya, the, the Mara Samyutta, where Mara comes and tries to knock the Buddha off his seat again. One of them, my favorite, Mara comes and says, you call yourself a renunciate? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? You And the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And then Mara slinks away. So if if Mara can come to the Buddha, cut yourself a little slack.
Every time you see it and you see those habits of mind, oh, it's just that one. And if you can see how empty it is, great. If you can see it's just a mental fabrication, my main practice, as I have shared and, and written about, is when I get really confused, I ask myself, what thought am I believing right now? Very simple. Because when I remind myself that, and then I just see, oh, I'm just kind of scaring myself. And if you can't see it clearly, then to hold it with compassion. And we have to learn how to hold ourselves. There's the uh, wonderful new development in the mindfulness scene called mindful self-compassion that Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer have put together who are practitioners and have done research and seeing how powerful it is to be, um, to be kind to ourselves. And, uh, my wife Jane teaches mindful self-compassion and there's lots of different self-compassion uh, courses or around in the Bay Area. This is the basic self-compassion technique, okay? Um, very simple. I, I have a variation that's not exactly like how she does it, but uh, this is how I do it. First, put your hand on your heart. And this right away soothes you and releases some uh, oxytocin and physiologically comforts you. All right. And then three phrases. This is a moment of suffering. Or you might say it in your own words, oh, this is really hard right now. Second phrase, suffering is a part of life. And you might think of all the people in the world that are going through what you're going through so you don't feel quite so alone. Suffering is a part of life. And then the last phrase, May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And let yourself take in that comfort, that tenderness, and also see that you're the one that's giving comfort. You're the wise Kuan Yin or a hand that is comforting yourself. So, to see that you can learn to hold your pain as well. Mm. So now going back into the world, you know, you've touched probably something really, um, uh, uh, maybe a new perspective. Howie did the, the big mind meditation today, you know, and I know a number of people really appreciated it. Oh, there's a whole other perspective instead of uh, me noticing things. It's just awareness, awareing. It's just awareness opening to things. And that's really powerful. Whatever perspective you've touched that goes beyond your small self is very profound. And when you see that it's all empty, it's all a game, uh, that's, that shifts things. But you need to stop on the red and go on the green and live your life and follow all the rules of relative reality. It just lets you play in your life with a little bit more space. You can't live in pure awareness all the time. You know, you have to honor the relative. You are you and you're a unique expression that's never lived, been, been manifested before. And it's just life manifesting through you. So, some things to keep in mind as you go back to being you. <clears throat> First, to keep in mind, you didn't lose your personality. It's still here, you know. First time I, I broke silence after a long, after a, a three-month retreat, and I opened up my mouth, uh, and um, there was judgment, paranoia, 
and insecurity. And I went running to my teacher saying, it didn't work. You know? <laughs> and he reminded me, it's not about losing your personality. It's about opening up and embracing the whole package and being very kind with it. And it's particularly challenging in our incredibly speedy, full life. And I want to uh, read to you um, a passage that shows what we're up against. Mm. We are by and large utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. This is Mark Morford, my favorite writer, uh, and the, the, the essay, which is, is, I'm just reading a short excerpt, is called, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. Okay. <laughs> we are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has a so convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't f swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data... Whose is that? Okay, thank you. More data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I, I read this study. More data was created in one 48-hour period than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years. And by the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed caption TV cameras. It's no closed circuit TV cameras. It's no, no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn <laughs> as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. So this is big, what we're up against. A few pointers. Really listen inside to what serves you. And let go of the idea that you're supposed to be like everybody else racing around in an insane life. Of course, there are things that you have to do, but if you are so busy that you can't be here for your life, this is a huge price to pay. Busy in the Chinese characters, I'm told, is heart plus killing. To look for the good and to take it in and to let in all the good coming your way, let in all the love coming your way. It's a main practice I have. You know, there's so much goodness coming our way that we miss. Every time somebody smiles at you or says hi, or says, hi, how you doing? Or shares some goodwill towards you, 
don't miss it. Let it nourish you. I think I've been seeing that one of the hardest things for people to do is let in the love. And when somebody does that, feel that connection and see them as an agent of life letting you know that you're loved. Let yourself be nourished by life. And then learn to listen to the truth inside. This is what we're doing. Besides what anybody else might say is the right thing to do, the right way to meditate, the right way to do your, your, your tasks, the right way to be accomplished and be successful. Listen inside. This is what we're doing. We are listening to the truth in every moment. And that's when you're meditating, you're noticing, oh, now there's a sound, and here's the breath, and here's some sadness, and here's some joy. We're learning to open to the truth in each moment. And what we're really learning to do is listen to the song of the Dharma. I love the image of Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi. You can always tell it's Milarepa. He has, he's the one with his hand to his ear. And he's listening to the songs of the Dharma. And that's one way I think of what we're doing, listening to the truth right inside. But that means slowing down enough to hear it and to really listen and know that voice, that ring of truth. There's so many messages coming through your mind. Some of them come with a finger wag. You better not blow it. How could you be so stupid? Or what's going to happen if you don't save the world? You know. <laughs> and then there's other voices that come in and say, this feels right. No, this doesn't feel right. And that has a ring of truth. It has a, a trusting, loving, supportive energy. And if you listen carefully enough, you can hear. Get to know it. Get to hear it in your, in your mind. Get to feel it in your body because your body doesn't lie. And simply ask yourself when you're confused, what do I need right now that will support true well-being? That doesn't mean, what do I need that's going to give me a hit of pleasure? What do I need? What's true for me right now? What will support me being present or waking up? And if you listen asking that question, chances are you'll hear the Buddha right inside. Oh, you need to slow down. Or maybe, no, you need to rev up. You need to, to really get, get on with what your heart says is so. But it will be coming from a kind, wise place. And it's okay to reach out if, you're, if your voice says, I need some help right now. And the more you are feeling the confidence to hear inside, the more you have to offer the world. And I want to just give you a sense that this practice is done in the context of contributing more consciousness in, into the world. This is the, the full flowering of our waking up. This is uh, from Nyosho Kempo, great Tibetan master. We are not practicing for ourselves alone since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on our perfectly pure motivation. The very hard essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta, the seed of enlightenment. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart. 
which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. This is one way to hold your practice, not just to feel a little better inside, but you have something to offer the world. Martin Seligman, who is the the father of positive psychology, and he wrote a book, Authentic Happiness, the, the seminal book on positive psychology. He says, authentic happiness comes from identifying our own strengths and gifts and then sharing them with the world. Not about what's in it for me and what can I get, but oh, what can I give? That's where the fullness comes. That's the expansive state of generosity of heart. It feels good. And that also means getting in touch with what really moves your heart. There's enough suffering to go around for everybody to be busy. But it's not up to you to save the world. As I said, it's too overwhelming. And for me, um, particularly, for instance, uh, climate change is a very uh, is very close to my heart because I think it's going to be kind of it'll be dicey. It's going to be hard. And the more we can wake up, the more, the sooner everybody else will wake up because it's contagious. And whether it's climate change or inequality, uh, economic inequality or racial uh, injustice or whatever it is that moves you, as Andrew Harvey says, find out what it is and follow your heartbreak. Follow your heartbreak because that's where your heart is moved. And if you can make a difference and contribute, it feels good. Because as Angelus Arian, a wonderful teacher who passed away a couple of years ago, said, action absorbs anxiety. (laughs) Instead of feeling overwhelmed and despair, do something. And it feels so much better when you do something with others. There's these studies that say when people hold hands with someone else, with others, their threshold for pain, physical and, um, and psychological and emotional pain, gets much higher. We can handle more when we do things together. So find people to play with and make a contribution with. It changes it from being isolated and alone and helpless to, yeah, we're doing this together. And things can change very, very quickly. Look how fast they've changed around same-sex marriage. Look how quickly, after decades of difficult work, and then the tipping point reached, and now conventional wisdom is very different. Look how fast they've changed, at least in the conventional wisdom, about um, um, domestic violence. It's not okay anymore. Even though it happens, it's just, it's a different way that our society holds it. And the same can be true for anything, including, look how fast things have changed about climate change. Even though there's still a ways to go, it's no longer a fringe kind of a weird thing that some, you know, hippies and tree huggers in California are concerned about. It's It's in the consciousness. So rather than feeling the outrage or anger at how things are, go underneath it because underneath whatever is breaking your heart is real caring. Underneath the outrage and the anger is a deep caring. And if you can act from that place of real care and love, that is much more magnetizing and enrolling than anger.
and the good guys and the bad guys. It's just ignorance is the real villain. We don't see clearly. Just like you don't sometimes see clearly and you get lost in your thoughts. Well, that's how it works on a societal scale too. So finding what really moves you and expressing your love as Julia Butterfly Hill says, take it on as a joyful responsibility. What better thing to do with your practice than see it as not only opening to true happiness for yourself, but to bring a little bit more consciousness into the world. As my friend Roger Walsh says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness trumps fear in the long run, but it's a race. So we need all the consciousness we can get. And that's what's contagious. So you are ambassadors of consciousness, making a difference in the world. This is very interesting, amazing times. There's a a famous um, uh, prophecy by um, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, who said that perhaps the most important significant act or a significant development in the 20th century is Buddhism coming to the West. Because this is bringing more mindfulness, more awareness, more consciousness, more loving kindness. Whether you call it Buddha Dharma or just consciousness, we are the ones that can make a difference or part of a very big movement. Never has there been as much greed, hatred, and delusion in the world and as much destruction on a mass scale. Never has there been as much consciousness in this world. Never. We're it. We're part of something quite extraordinary. So to see your practice in that context it up-levels it from, oh, poor me with my, my dukkha and my drama, <laughs> to, oh, wow, how can I learn to be as loving and as caring and as conscious and as wise as I can because that's my gift to the world. And we don't have to do it by ourselves. That's the beauty. We do it with each other. And I want to close with a, a poem by Dana Falls called Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown, and together facing yet another fear, that is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.